0: Let's pray. Precious heavenly father, we who are your children have just sang the words that we were once lost in the darkest night. We thought we knew our way. The sin that promised joy led us instead to the grave. We ran a hell-bound race. We were indifferent to the cost. But you looked upon our helpless estate, and you led us to the cross. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. May these words not just be sung, but may we be thankful for the truths that are found in them, that come from your word. Help us to hear your words this morning, recorded long ago and just as relevant today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, we pray. Amen. So, on your bulletin, you will notice on the sermon notes page, which are two different pieces of paper, that the main idea is not nothing. That simply means that I did not get it in in time, so it's 100% my fault. So let me give you the big idea in case you need to leave early. Hopefully you won't, but here it is. Two parts, so it's a two-part main idea. My apologies, but it's important. Jesus was sustained By doing the will of the Father. So Jesus was sustained by doing the will of the Father. Some sow. Second part. Some sow. Some will reap. But God produces the growth. Which is eternal life. Some sow. Some reap. But God produces the growth. Which is eternal life. Life. So let us go back into the glorious book of John together and unpack this morning's sermon text. Last week, Matt preached so well, did he not? Praise God. Uh, What a blessing to be able to have a bench like we have, to be able to call from our elders and uh, also the staff of our church and be able to have folks like Jeremy a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, Praise God, I am so thankful for these men. Let's go back to John 4. And I want to draw your attention to verse 27 before we go forward. At this point, let's stop. So I have no idea if I'm going to finish on time today. I will tell you this. God, in his sovereignty and through his will, has changed my manuscript this morning, and that's okay. So I did not have this in what I sent to the elders yesterday, but I believe this is very important to this morning's text, and let me explain why. At this point, his disciples, these are Jesus' disciples, came to him, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, and yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Divine providence in your bulletins, outlines, I'd like you to write those two words. Divine providence. Think about this for a second. We have been in one of the longest narratives, in fact, the longest narrative in the entire Bible, that Jesus speaks to a woman. So here we are in verse 27, and there is something that has happened by divine providence, at exactly the divine moment. Now, just to refresh your memories, if you haven't joined us on this three-week journey so far, which will conclude next week, Lord willing. So Jesus left Jerusalem, went up, heading up, and where did he go into? Samaria. Samaria, to the town of Sychar. And lo and behold, he arrives at noon, and who shows up? The Samaritan woman. Why does she show up at noon? She's had five husbands. She's living with another man. She is shunned. She is ostracized. This is not the time of day when women collected water. But at the divine providential timing, Jesus shows up and then what happens? He sends his disciples, how many of them? All of them to the town. Now, the importance of this is really important you catch. He didn't need all of them to get the food, number one. Number two, Jews did not buy food from Samaritans. So Jesus didn't act like any other Jew. Jesus didn't talk like any other Jew. And he was not bound by the restrictions that were man-imposed. And he sends all of his disciples into town. And he is now there at the well with the woman. Which well are we at? Jacob's well. And she shows up, and he starts to talk to her. Her reaction is, why are you talking to me? Not only are you a man, but you're a Jew. Wow. So she is not used to this treatment, I promise you. Certainly not from someone who is a Jew, certainly not from someone that's a rabbi or a teacher. But he starts the conversation with her. And what does he do? Look down to verse 26. The woman says to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to who? Us. Jesus says to her, sorry, that was verse 25. Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who you speak to am he. This is one of the most shocking statements that's found in the book of John. Why? He has just declared his Messiahship not to Nicodemus, not at night, not to the Jewish leaders, not to the rabbis, not to the Pharisees, not to the Sadducees, to A woman, a Samaritan woman, an adulterous Samaritan woman, an outcast Samaritan woman, one-on-one at the well. And Jesus, with laser precision, tells her, I am the Messiah, hearkening back to Exodus. Notice at this point, verse 27. If the disciples came Two seconds before this, they would have interrupted this conversation. And they had questions on their mind, which we'll see in a second. What were the questions? Why is he speaking to a woman? Doesn't he know? They don't voice their questions. But at this point. So I want you to think of divine providence. So they're in Sidecar, they're shopping, and something has to happen, doesn't it? They have to be finished their shopping, they have to walk back, and then it's something has to happen to ignite them to go back into there, right? If they show up too early, they interrupt it. If they show up too late, they miss it. God is orchestrating thousands of details at every second of every life in this room. And you see them as coincidental, but they're providential. And at this moment in verse 27, we see his disciples just happen to show up. Really? And they were amazed and they've been speaking with, they've been speaking with the woman, yet no one said anything. Why do you seek? What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? And the question that I ask of you this morning is why? Why didn't the disciples question the rabbi? Why did John put it in here if it was not important? It is important. So Jesus didn't treat women like the Jews treated women. Jesus' ministry was speaking to many women ministering to many women. Jesus has a high view of women. Jesus shows compassion to women for they are image bearers of God. As you may recall from a former sermon of mine, Jewish men and rabbis used to close their eyes and they would walk and sometimes they would even walk into walls and sometimes their faces would be cut or their hands would be cut or their arms would be cut. And they would know that was a sign that they, as soon as they saw a woman, they would turn. And it was all external. The internal was not transformed. But here is Jesus not just entering into a conversation, but loving a woman that was not lovable. At this very point, at this very moment, they see Jesus. Jesus repeatedly welcomed women, listen to this, into his company. One time he was dining at a Pharisee's house when a sinful woman, remember, gate crashed. She wept at Jesus' feet. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them. And then the Pharisees were appalled. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman was this who was touching him. Luke 7, verse 39. When Jesus finally reached the sick 12-year-old girl, she was... Dead. But it wasn't too late. Speaking in Aramaic, they shared their mother tongue, and Jesus said, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. And she got up, Mark 5 41. Whether little girls or prostitutes, whether despised foreigners or women made unclean by menstrual blood, whether they were married or single or sick, disabled. Jesus made time for women, and he treated them with care. Jesus treated women differently. His mother, Mary Magdalene, the woman bent over for 18 years, the Seraphonician, Mary, Martha, the widow with the two coins and others. Jesus, by his action, demonstrates the biblical truth that we know from Genesis chapter 1. God created male and female in his image with equal value and with equal dignity. With differing and complementary and honorable roles, Jesus valued women because they're created in the image of God equal. God's word explains why from the beginning. Genesis 1.26 and explicitly states that God, the creator did not create man and then there was a need and there was a vacancy and therefore it was an afterthought. No, 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 no. They're made in the image of God. Man and woman. Not one of his disciples questioned why he was talking with a woman. What does that tell you? Why? That's the question I pose to you. And here's, I think, what the answer is. When we are new as a disciple, we question everything. But as we grow in our understanding of who the Lord is, we realize his ways are not our ways. And we stop questioning. We observe. And then eventually, we just simply trust So his disciples are at this stage of not really getting it, questioning in their minds, but not questioning overtly. It would have been very easy for them to say, she left, let's ask them, but they don't. Verse 27 is not a throwaway verse. It is hugely important to this text. The Samaritan woman leaves in verse 28, and I want you to notice what she does. Why did she go to the well? Well, to get water. Good answer. But what does she leave? Verse 28. She leaves her water pot. And she goes to the town. See, that, that's what it looks like when we meet the Savior. Maybe some of you have a story that's similar to that. You went about your daily routine with your plans and your sin-stained past, and you were busy, present, working, and then the Lord got your attention. And through someone shared the word of God with you, and you heard it. You heard about the Messiah, and now something made sense. Something changed. It has no bearing to the fact that you in any way contributed to that. It's that he opened your heart. And everything was different. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. So here's Christ. He has just told her about herself. And her reaction is not, let me bring the water pots and go back to town. So I do my task. It's, I turn from the task and I run to the town to tell of others about what just happened. That's exactly what happens. So she leaves the jars. Isn't God's word amazing? It didn't have to include that detail, but it does. Left to ourselves, we are completely and utterly spiritually blind, point one. Hence the point where I don't know where we'll get to today. Walking in spiritual blindness, verses 31 to 33 from this morning's text. I could not go forward without emphasizing that for you. Because that baton that's passing from Elder Matt to me is so important that we take and we don't just rush through this text. And those are not throwaway pieces, and we need to pay attention to them. Our spiritual blindness is a resultant of our inherited, sinful, corrupted nature from when? Childhood? Youth? From birth. Open your Bibles, if you will, and just look to one verse with me in the book of Psalms. So, Psalms, look to verse 51 and look down to verse 5. Psalm 51, verse 5. Context here is this is a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 verse 5. Now easily, easily David could have said, that act that I have just done contributes to my iniquity in my sinful estate. But what does he say? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity... And in, my, in sin, my mother conceived me. God's word tells us that yes, we are sinners. Everyone in this room and everyone online. And we are all sinners. No one is righteous. No, not one. But that is not from something that you have done exclusively. That's also a condition through your very birth And so you have, from Adam to the second Adam, a condition that is a sin-stained world. And it shows up again and again. But by the grace of God, in Ephesians 2, 3, all people who were once sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 5, and when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive with Christ by the grace of God. Does that stir your hearts this morning? I hope it does, by the grace of God. Jonathan Edwards adds to this, the souls of natural men were so blinded that they see no beauty or excellency in Christ. They do not see his sufficiency. There's no beauty in the work of salvation by him. And as long as they remain thus blind, it is impossible that they should come close with Christ. The heart will never be drawn to an unknown Savior. It is impossible that a man should love and freely choose and rejoice in that, in which he sees no excellency but. If your eyes were open to see the excellency of Christ and the work would be done, you would immediately believe in him And you would find your heart going after him. It is impossible to keep it back. And that's where the Samaritan woman is. She has just been told. By the Savior. The Messiah. The I am. Of her past. And she now realizes. That the water pots aren't the focal point. It's to tell the good news. This Call produces new life. A dead man cannot respond to anything. Lazarus in the grave cannot come back to life. Could he? Unless God raises him. God's call is like that of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In the... Case, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, light shines out of darkness. It is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So here we are in John. We're in John chapter four. We've had bigger chunks of John recently, so some of you are encouraged. Maybe some of you want it slower. That's okay too. So here in John are four glimpses of spiritual blindness. Some of you know John Piper. I love the enthusiasm that John Piper, the preacher, the author, has in God's word. And he says... There's four instances, John 2, 19. Remember, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in how many days? Three days. But it took you 46 years to build it. How are you gonna raise it up? How about John 3, 3? Nicodemus, truly, truly I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And how does he, Jesus respond to him? Or Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? How about John 4, 10? Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What does she say? Sir, you have nothing to draw the, the well. It's 100 feet deep. Third instance. Fourth. Here come the disciples in John 4, 31. And they say to him, look to God's word. Rabbi, eat. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, what? Has anyone brought him a sandwich? (laughs) Seriously. So they have just watched. They have just learned about the fact that the Samaritan woman, right? They haven't, got, they haven't caught up to this one yet, but they have heard about, I'm sure, this whole interaction with Nicodemus. These are the disciples. The temple, the repurposing of the temple from the physical building to what? His body, his resurrection. He says, I will raise the temple in three days. It took 46 years to build this. You must be born again. How can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? I will give you living water. You don't have a bucket. I will give you food to eat. Who brought them something to eat? They don't get it. None of them. The religious leaders, the Samaritan woman, the Pharisees, nobody gets it. Do you see this? This pattern of spiritual blindness is because their eyes have not been opened by God yet. For when they are Everything changes. And what was once dark becomes light. There's not only an inherited spiritual blindness, but there's an active desire by the enemy to keep you darkened in a depraved state. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says this, the God of this world does not blind believers, but he blinds the minds of them which believe not. It is therefore a very dangerous thing not to believe on the Son of God. Hear carefully these words. The penalty of unbelief is death and condemnation. And the penalty begins with the fall of man when in consequence of their belief, their foolish heart is darkened and their intellect loses the power to perceive spiritual objects. And the God of this world blinds their mental vision how anxious Satan is to secure your destruction. Since rather than that, you should see the saving life, he takes the trouble to blind your eyes. This is warfare. Don't misunderstand this. This is not a passing interest. This is you're either saved or you're not. You're either a Christian or you are not a Christian. There is nothing in between. There's no gray. Two destinies. One is heaven and one is hell. And if we tell people anything different, we do not honor our Lord. He did not speak gently about eternity, but he spoke with clarity. The battle strategy of our enemy is to do anything possible to keep you from the light, which will expose the darkness. For we walk in the light as children of light, in the walk of the darkness of children of darkness, there is no dimly lit path for you to follow to help navigate this perilous journey without the radiant beauty of Jesus Christ. She did not have a clue who was standing in front of her. Isn't that fascinating? Think about that for a second. You have the Savior of the world, the Messiah, sitting at a well, alone, and she has no clue. And she's talking about a water jug And his thirst. And remember what did Jesus say? I'll take water from your jug. Right? That in verse seven, I mean that is shocking. He is not worried about what people think, he's worried about where they're going. Their souls are what matter, not outward manifestations of behavior. John 4, 32, Jesus says, I have food to eat. What you do not know about, the disciples, like us, perhaps, ask the natural question, who gave them some? They just got the food, right? They just went to town. What, did you give him some food? I didn't see anybody give him some food. The question actually is not wrong, but as a result of their inhibited understanding and sight at this point as disciples. Jesus, though, was not talking about food but rather the sustenance from following the will of the Father, point two. This is the point of the text. Point two, verse 34, is it. So if you want the culmination of this entire, there's three highlight moments, three pinnacles, three peaks within John 4, verse 1 to 42. And they are when Jesus has a self-identification in verse 26, Following the Father's will, verse 34, and then we'll see next week, Lord willing, where the response that comes from that in belief. The book of John echoes this theme and it's look at your supporting scriptures. I will not reference most of them, but just pay close attention. So look down on your bulletins and I want you to notice in the book of John how many times... This theme is apparent. And if you want to go home and you want to go to lunch and you want to have a great conversation about something that maybe you haven't ever had, just scan through a few of these verses and notice that the Savior of the world was laser-focused from his early days to the cross at only one thing, the will of the Father, again and again and again. That's what sustained him, not physical food. Remember in the temptation of the wilderness? What was the enemy do? Did God really say? Right? That's the trick. All the way back to the garden, contorting, transforming God's word and saying, hey, God's going to give you some bread. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone. Do you see the trick? All the way back, physical need, physical problem let me succumb to that let me focus upon that and Jesus is always pointing forward saying that's not the focus the focus is here don't we want to be more like that so look at John all the references but I'm going to draw your attention just to two things John five thirty six. this is the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the father has given to me accomplish the very works I do. Testify about me that the Father has sent me. And John six thirty eight, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is all about doing God's will. It's all about that. Humility from cover to cover. And D.A. Carson adds, and if you don't know who D.A. Carson is... Uh, some of the books, well, all the books of the Bible have commentaries. These are people that write about the books of the Bible, that spend time analyzing the books of the Bible. And the single best commentary that exists, as far as I'm concerned, on the book of John is written by D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson is a scholar of epic proportions, a theologian, and a godly man. And I've had the chance to listen to him in in various settings. And uh, this particular man has insights, particularly in the original languages, which are so helpful to me because often I'm so inept compared to them. But he adds this comment, for there is greater sustenance and satisfaction for Jesus in performing the will of God than in any food the disciples could offer him. Indeed, all of Jesus' ministry is nothing other than submission to and performance of the will of him who sent him. It's all about the father's will. Food, particularly bread. Now, you may not know this, but in our culture, pop quiz, what percentage of America do you think actually are farmers? Less than 13? How about 2%? So 2% of America feed 98% of us. Isn't that amazing? In this time and age, in this day and age, 80 to 90% of people did farming. So, what does the master storyteller do? (laughs) He doesn't just use any analogy for comparative reasons, he uses the one that everybody understands. Food, and particularly bread, is used how many times in the Bible? 492 times from cover to cover. This is a daily need. It's not like us where we go and I go to the fridge and I open it and go, is there mold on it? I don't know. My wife goes, it's still safe to eat. And I go, come on, I'm not sure I buy it. It's it's expired a week ago. That's not what their life is like. Or maybe you're like me, right? So you're looking at it suspiciously. This was a daily need. So what do they do? They spent time every day going to get water. They're not pressing their fridge and going, my filter needs to change. No, this is a daily need for water and for bread. Often through the book of John, often through the gospels, Jesus demonstrates his obedience to the will of his father. Jesus, the master storyteller, the memorable storyteller, uses the most common profession in all of Israel to provide a complete contrast between physical needs and spiritual needs. So what does he do? Luke picks up Jesus' focus on fulfilling the word of oh, the, the will of the Father in Luke 4 4. Let me read it to you. Such as within the temptation account, what does he say? Man shall not live on bread alone. Daily need, daily temptation. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Number one need for every day is not physical sustenance, but spiritual sustenance. But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, no one has ever lived that has better exemplified Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which is bread from heaven. If you go to Exodus 16.4, it actually is translated as what is this? So Chris Rojas sent me that comment, which is so helpful. This manna back to Deuteronomy 8.3, which you did not know about, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by proceed, everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. John 4, 34 echoes these Old Testament words. Originally, this was spoke by Moses to Israel. But what does Jesus do? He takes all the way back in the Old Testament, and he just goes, here I am. Guess what? This is what they actually mean. My food, Jesus says in John four thirty four, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's all about the will of the father. They had no idea back in the day that that was gonna be picked up by the savior of the world, the Messiah, and now transported from this to this and applied in this way. But God's word is a beautiful dot-to-dot mosaic. And when it comes together, it completes a picture that only God, through his divine providential will, could do. And he sent me, God the Father, is with me, says Jesus. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John eight twenty nine. Jesus' life is life because he gives life. God gave life us eternal life and this is life what his son whoever has the son has life 1 John 5:11 do you get it they're thinking we need the bread we need the water to sustain our life and Jesus goes no 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 you don't get it you may have longer years but you're still dying you're going to be without God eternally and perishing unless you have the Son, who is life. I am the life giver. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. John six twenty seven to 29. Do not work for food that perishes, but work for the food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Do you remember that? Where did that take place? He just fed 5,000. Actually, a lot more. Remember? As soon as he feeds them, where's our next meal coming from? Seriously. I mean, that's how darkened the minds and the hearts are. That's how focus the people are on, the physical sustenance. Jesus' food is to be what he is. The I am life, the living waters, the bread from heaven. Jesus was not sustained by earthly food, but by himself as the heavenly food. Jesus was not sustained by earthly life, but by himself is life. Lord, where else shall we turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. Your word is life for it reveals Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we apply that to us? See, this is a really interesting question. See, Jesus completes the will of the Father, correct? Yes, good answer. Glad you nodded. So faithfully obediently perfectly completes it how do we today fallen sinners saved by grace take that and apply that forward to our lives because that is the question see if all this is is a history lesson for you and you know more about how we go to wells and what jesus says and how the old testament is connected to jesus but it doesn't transform our lives then it's fruitless and pointless all you become, then is more puffed up and more educated, and actually more dangerous, because we want to go low. See, Jesus' whole life is servitude to the Father's will. Jesus' example of fathering, of following the Father's will, provides us, I believe, one of the most important lessons from this particular passage as believers. Matthew seven. 17 to 21. Maybe you may mark that under this point, under point two. Every good tree bears fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. We do a lot of biblical counseling, Don and I. And in a seminary, they don't actually train you well how to do counseling, truthfully. They train you well how to do exposition of God's word, maybe, or exegesis, perhaps, or study original languages, hopefully. But then you get with the sheep, and you realize 80 to 90% of what you're actually here to do is not trained. And so that is partly learned the hard way, partly further studying, and a lot of prayer. But one of the things that you realize very quickly when you're doing counseling is tree and fruit, again, farming analogies, Is so poignant to see how people are either bearing fruit or bearing thorns. For if you look into God's word, there is nothing in between. A fruit turned inward is a thorn. And if we are filling ourselves with things that are not from the Lord, what happens? if our heart's desire, if our self-focus becomes what we are focused upon, we become thorny. We become more sinful. But every good tree bears good fruit. Why? Because it's connected to the right vine, the right tree, the right root system. Trees that fall over have shallow roots, generally. Every tree, verse 19, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So question, are we saved because of our works? You can go to James and you can look at Paul and you can think, oh boy, they seem to be saying different things. They're not. But everybody that is saved will bear good fruit. In other words, our outflowing, our works are a byproduct of our position. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that not cause you to fear? One verse in all the Bible that I tremble at more than any is Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of who? My Father. Do you get what he's saying? He exists to do the will of the Father. We, as Christians, exist to do the will of the Father. There's the point. Who is in heaven will enter. Obedience to the Father's will does not earn our salvation, for we are saved by grace through faith alone. Yet, obedience to the will of the Father is evidence of one's authentic saving faith already accomplished. Second point of application. Believers, we are secure in salvation due to what God the Son, Jesus Christ, has already accomplished. So those two points are very interconnected. What that means is if you are saved, picture parts of the Bible that talk about God hiding his people in what? The cleft of a rock, under the wings, you're not going to be plucked out. So there's days where you might sin and you might start to question, "Ooh, am I really saved?" If we are saved, we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's not your doing, it's his. We are to bear good works. Our patterns are to be moving towards a sanctification, more Christ-like. But there are going to be times where we fall short. The high priestly prayer, in John 17, verses 1 through 4, Jesus spoke these words. Remember the scene? So, John, we're going to get there one day. 13 to 17, Jesus washes their feet. At the end, he prays the longest prayer in all of the Bible by Jesus. Here are the opening four verses. Jesus spoke these things and raising his eyes towards seven, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you just as you gave him authority over all mankind. And here's the point. So that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. There's no question. Who is chosen will be saved. It comes from them. And this is eternal life, that they may know that you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. get Again and again and again and again. Jesus, will of the Father, will of the Father, will of the Father, right to the cross. And right at the last hour, then my hour has come, he repeats, I did what you told me to do. I did what, the, what your will was. And because of that, those that are in Christ, those that are who are chosen will be saved. So there's a security that comes from his work. Second Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13. If we have died with him, we also live with him. This saying is trustworthy and true. For if we endure, we also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. So the fact that you fall short, the fact that I fall short, the fact that I sin does not in any way jeopardize who our Savior is. That does not mean faithful to us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful to himself. For he cannot deny himself. If you don't have faith, his faithfulness does not commit himself to save you. Hear that. If you are without faith, your parents' faith isn't going to save you. Your actions aren't going to save you. Saying the words in a prayer when you're 13 and living a life that's going to hell isn't going to save you. I would actually really misserve you by saying that differently. Some people say, oh, you know, one of the things that was heartbreaking for me was watching people in our family who years ago passed away were holding out hope because of prayers that happened 30, 40 years ago. Said, no, 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 I think they're saved because they said that there. But their life looked dramatically different here. God's word is very clear. Every tree bears good fruit. Mark thirteen thirteen, you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures will be saved. Once again, the finishing the race well, enduring does not earn or merit our salvation, but is evidential of authentic faith. That's what I want you to say. Someone says to you, do I know I'm saved? Fruit does not earn it, but fruit is evidence of it. For real faith is active, it's obedient. Genuine faith is not a spectator sport, but we're all involved in the great commission until Jesus returns. So, point three, we need to labor for the harvest. Do not say there are yet four months in verse 35, and then comes the harvest. Maybe some of you grew up near farms. I grew up in Toronto, Canada. Let me tell you, not a lot of farms. Farms. Okay, but just kind of north of our city, we'd go in the fall and we'd pick maybe a pumpkin or we'd go to that and do a hay ride or go to that kind of thing. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. And I'd feel like a farmer for about 12 minutes, <laughs> right? Maybe even get a piece of hay on my teeth. So in Israel, the farming process began around the month November or December. It was a staggered sowing season over a period of about four months and you know when it culminated? At this festival of Passover. Today, we are so far from the farming community that sometimes we read these and we can't really understand. But for them, when Jesus talks about this period of time and this harvesting that's coming in the residual of this passage, uh, they understood immediately what he meant. Jesus here actually extends this agricultural metaphor in two directions. Look down to verse 36 as we near the finish line. Already he who reaps is receiving wages, and he who is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is actually taking an eschatological promise. That's a big term. That's kind of saying, hey, look at the Old Testament. It's pointing forward to the New. This is where it's kind of saying, here's how it's going to be fulfilled. And it comes from the book of Amos 9.13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, he who sows seed. When the mountains will drip, sweep wine and all the hills will be dissolved. For in this case is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labored. Jesus here is taking an Old Testament statement, and now he's applying it to his disciples. Now, there's differing views as to what Jesus actually means, and I'm not 100% sure, but I have a, I have a, I have a bias. So, are the disciples that are coming back from Sychar to the well seeing the woman and then the town people are coming out next week is that the harvest that he's referencing and it's entirely possible that it is for jesus is the one that all of the work has just been attributed to nothing they've done and traditionally this harvest season which generally their seeds planted and the god causes the growth and that takes time but From an eschatological perspective, you have the Savior of the world now showing up. And so the time between A and B has gone like this in some cases. And I think Jesus is showing his disciples and us today that the beginning of those days, the I am Messiah, the beginning of the Messianic age, has begun. And he says at the end of verse 36... There's already reaping fruit for eternal life with no natural gap of months. The sower and the reaper may rejoice together. And what he's doing here is collapsing the sowing and the reaping into one event so the joy is a foretaste of what Amos saw. Second part I think he's doing. It prepares for others to sowers than Jesus. Verse 37, for in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored and entered into their labor. This might be hearkening back to what John the Baptist said. Remember I said there's different views. This could be some of the work that John the Baptist and all of that planting is coming to fruition. But I think the better and the more contextually accurate application here is exactly what just happened at the well. And I think what's happening is these people that have now been told about Jesus by this woman at the well that are now coming to the well is a harvest that no one even thought was harvestable. So in verse 37 is the true to this situation. Jesus sent his disciples to reap which they have not worked for. And verse 38 expands to include the purpose of his calling. And here's how we conclude today. How do we apply our labor from a 2,000-year-old story to the Church of the Canyons? So this is, I think, the most important point for us to walk away with. Second to verse 34. Our church has, in the last year, if I think through what we've done to share the good news of Jesus Christ... We've handed out flyers door-to-door. I've been part of that. Invited people to the church under the oaks, if I remember the name of it correctly. We have printed out Christmas things. We handed out missional bakeware. Um, I've seen and I've talked to some of your neighbors that have come to the church. Praise the Lord. I've even met people from Brazilian jiu-jitsu who did not attack me. So thank you. These are good first steps, but they're not done. We have much work to do as a church. This church should be filled and overflowing because of who we preach. Prayer, number one. Are you praying for the lost? It's truly lost in your family, lost in your neighborhoods, lost that should be here. Often, We think our works are going to yield results. It has nothing to do with our works. It's 100% our dependence on Christ, on the Lord, on the Holy Spirit. Prayer. I'd like to talk to our leadership in time about doing an evangelism course. On March 10th, you'll see, and perhaps even before that, that we are talking about things like an outreach ministry within our church. More to come. Are we burdened for the lost in our community, our city, and our beyond and beyond? The goal is not salvation. The goal is our faithful proclamation. So are we proclaiming Christ? Not sending a little link, but praying for the lost, inviting the lost, persistent for the lost. The Lord calls his disciples to the work of evangelism, and it contains rewards. Fruit brings eternal joy. And here's the last point to the sermon. When we're busy laboring for the Lord, we're joyous in our labor. When we have purpose for God that transcends our busy weeks, we share in the joy of sinners coming to saving faith through no means of our own. Is there any greater joy than that? Seriously. In my Bible at home, one of my Bibles, actually it's upstairs, are written the words when Olivia came to saving faith. They, that Bible is so precious to me, you have no idea. Because the night she did it, she signed it, she dated it. And I watched her mom discipling her and we prayed for her. What a joy. We don't contribute to her faith in any meaningful way. The Lord did not need us but he uses us. Isn't that a divine mystery? Some of you have lost children. Continue to pray for them. Continue to be bold. Share. One of the things that I am so encouraged is when I hear of some people in our church sharing sermon texts, sharing scripture with their family consistently and praying for them. Be prayer warriors. People come to Christ when we share the gospel. Romans ten fourteen. How will they call on him and who they have not believed and who have not heard? If there is joy in heaven over a sinner coming to faith, how much joy should our lives be when a sinner comes to faith? We praise God for providing spiritual sight. We praise God for providing clear direction through his word on how to follow his will. And we praise God for laboring and allowing us to labor in the sharing of the seeds of faith. Jesus was sustained by doing the will of the Father. So should we be. Some reap, some will sow, but God produces growth. And let me conclude with these words from 1,600 years ago from Augustine. You are ever active, yet you are always at rest. You are gathering All things to yourself, though you suffer no need, you grieve for wrong, you suffer no pain. You can be angry and yet serene. Your words are varied, but your purpose is one and the same. You welcome those who come to you, though you never lost them. You are never in need, and you are glad to gain. Never covetous, yet exact return for your gifts. You release us from our debts, but you lose nothing thereby. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to say to you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Listen to his warning at the end. Yet woe betide those who are silent about you. Let's pray. Father, that warning at the end is something that we need to take to heart today as a church. For those that are in Christ, we have displayed your love, displayed. You have suffered in our place. You have bore the wrath that was reserved for us. And now all we know is your grace. Lord, would our lives be yours alone. So that all might see that the strength that we exhibit to follow your commands could never come from any one of us. Father, use our ransom lives in any way you choose and let our song forever be that our only boast